What's up, Videolanders? I'm your host, Brad Hawkins. Quick reminder, you can find us on adventuresinvideoland.com or on our Facebook at Adventures in Videoland. A few weeks ago, I interviewed Jeff Dowd, the real-life inspiration for the dude. During the interview, we talked about a line of dialogue from The Big Lebowski. There's a scene where the dude says he was a member of the Seattle Seven, an anti-war movement during the Vietnam War. The dude wasn't lying. Jeff Dowd was put on trial in Seattle for conspiring to start a riot. I wanted to know more about his story. During Jeff's interview, he recommended a book that was released in March titled Protest on Trial, The Seattle Seven Conspiracy. So I reached out to the author of the book, Kit Backey. Sometimes a small line of dialogue in a movie can pack a lot of information. I hope you enjoy the conversation as we continue to celebrate the 20th anniversary of The Big Lebowski. Please welcome author Kit Backey. Welcome to Videoland, Kit. Hey, thanks. So I have a copy of your book in front of me, Protest on Trial, the Seattle 7 Conspiracy. But before we talk about those events, can you give us the lay of the land? What was going on in our country from 1968 to 1970? Wow, yeah, that's, that's really a great question. And I have found that, you know, there's a lot of people who live through those times, but it's it's been a long time ago, and then there's a lot of kids nowadays who it's like ancient history. Um, so it's important to, 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 in order to understand the um, the Seattle Seven trial and the and the motives of why the guys did what they did. Uh, you really have to understand what the environment was like then. Um, and basically, I'll tell you, basically, our democracy was in total ruin. Um, and it's, it's hard. We think it's difficult today, but um, things were really bad then. Uh, there was uh, rampant racism, um, riots in every major city over those years, uh, particular, that really spiked in uh, April of 1968 when Martin Luther King was assassinated. We have to remember, Martin Luther King was assassinated. He was the peaceful guy, and he was shot down. Um, in April of 1968, and then in June, like three weeks later, Robert F. Kennedy was shot dead while he was running for president. He was a presidential candidate and had just won the California primary uh, and was literally giving his acceptance speech when he was shot down and killed. So it seemed like, oh my God, we don't have a government anymore. You know, we're... we're whatever happens, it just happens. People can, it's the Wild West again. Um, and then, uh, so that was in June of 68, and then in August and September, late August, early September, was the Democratic National Convention. This was a presidential election year. And it was in Chicago. It was like 100 degrees. Um, I was there. There were a lot of demonstrations in the streets related to the Vietnam War. Um, the candidates, the Democratic candidates, um, all said that they wanted to try to end the war, but nobody really believed them because that's what everybody was saying, but it just kept getting worse. The numbers of troops that were being sent to Vietnam was going up. The um, uh, bombing that was, you know, I mean, we were like, 
Agent Orange, we were like chemical warfare in, in this little agrarian country that was very far away from us that obviously had no air force of its own and certainly wasn't about to attack the United States. Um, so the whole war was making a lot less sense to anybody. Uh, and so there were these um, demonstrations in Chicago that turned into uh, what later was called a police riot by a, uh, a nonpartisan committee that had been appointed to uh, investigate it because nobody had ever seen white kids getting beat up by cops before. I mean, we had seen black people get beat up by cops. Um, that was happening all the time. But to see a bunch of sort of clean-cut co white college kids getting beat up on television every night was a shock to a lot of Americans. And uh, it, was, it was interesting to see people's reaction to that. So Chicago um, was the spark then. It, it, was a, it was an expansion, yeah. It definitely expanded people's um, understanding that things were not, things were indeed falling apart. It seemed like the country was truly falling apart. One of the other things that happened in 1968 was that um, Dr. Spock, who is not the television um, Vulcan guy, it, but the... Um, baby doctor, Benjamin Spock. A lot of us kids, baby boomers like myself, were raised on this book about baby and child care. Dr. Spock was, he was idolized by all these uh, mothers um, in this, of, of my mother's generation. Anyway, he was um, charged with, uh, a, on federal conspiracy charges because he was, advising young men um, about ways that they might not have to go to Vietnam uh, when they were drafted. The, the draft was going on at this point, too, so everybody knew somebody who was in Vietnam. It was not like today where the people who are in the Army are not related to the people who, the political people who are making the decisions about no should we have this war or not? Uh, so he was he was convicted. Um, Benjamin Spock, Dr. Spock was convicted, which was pretty much of a shock to everybody. The other thing, of course, that was happening was um, not only was Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy shot dead, but there were um, college students on three separate campuses who were demonstrating against the war in a in a relatively peaceful manner. They weren't throwing bombs and stuff like that. They were just marching around or they were being on strike um, from their classes. And um, trigger-happy state governments um, called in National Guard and police and sheriffs. And uh, the one, of course, that most people have heard of is the Kent State shootings which was in Ohio, four students were um, murdered and a number of, I think, nine others were injured. Some um, became paraplegic and was like uh, a big deal. Uh, but for, there were also, on two black campuses, um, and on one, three were killed, and on another one, uh, another campus, two, this was in um, 
Jackson State in Mississippi and Orangeburg uh, in South Carolina. Uh, and we don't hear about those because, again, those were black people being killed. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, the racism is just so endemic. Um, we, don't, we don't think about that. So by 1970, there were 58,000 Americans who had died, uh, military who had died in Vietnam. And it's important to remember that this is before, 1970 is before the Pentagon Papers were released. For those of you who watched the movie Washington Post, um, this is prior to that. It's before the, all the bad stuff about the FBI's COINTEL program came out. Um, it, and it was during a time when television was the major news source. And there were, uh, this is before the internet too, people have to remember. So yeah. <laughs> there were like, <laughs> there were three news stations and they um, showed a number of um, reporters, war reporters in Vietnam at that time were not embedded the way they are today, if you remember, we now have these embedded reporters where they can only go where the military says they can go and where their stories are censored. Um, if you remember back in the Afghan war several years ago, um, I forget whether it was, it was either Obama or Bush said, you can't show pictures of body bags coming back from Afghanistan you know, soldiers who've been killed in Afghanistan, you can't show that. Well, that wasn't true in Vietnam. They could they could show whatever they wanted to and the reporters could go wherever they wanted to. So there was an awful lot of really graphic and just horrendous stuff on TV every single night. The other thing I would talk about would be women's rights issues in those days. Abortion was still illegal in those days. Um, there were huge inequities in pay, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so th it was a it was a bad time. Um, it was yeah. a bad time. So where were you located in 1970? Because you said you were in Chicago um, during the time of the protest. Were you in Seattle? Um, no, I was not in Seattle. I was at that point. I graduated from college in 1968 um, back east, and I when I graduated in political science, I um, I had been involved in, I, I started the Students for a Democratic Society chapter at my college and had gone to a lot of anti-war demonstrations while I was at college. So when I graduated, I went to, I went right to Chicago to the SDS, Students for Democratic Society, national office, which is, that's where it was in Chicago. And I worked in the national office um, until it closed uh, in late 1969 because of the uh, SDS fell apart long story it terrible factional infighting and it split into two groups one of which was the weathermen and I sided on the weathermen side and so I left I, I left the national office in Chicago and worked in a weatherman collective for um, a number of years Tell us about the Weathermen and what role you played in that group. Well, <laughs> I was really just a, like a little worker bee. I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't like a top tier, uh, scary person. But it it was scary. I was, you know, running around and had fake IDs and um, 
it's uh, doing doing various things in various parts of the country. I guess is the way to say it. Um, I was not in Seattle um, during the time uh, that the book is about, which in many ways I think helped clarify the book itself because it's not about me. It really is about about these other people. And interestingly, the Seattle Seven were very opposed to the tactics of Weatherman and the Weather Underground. So it was really an interesting experience for me to be interviewing these guys and uh, and understanding their their point of view. I, I learned a lot about my own behavior, I think, in, uh, in uh, researching theirs. Uh, so... And yeah, uh, I noticed that you have, uh, I was doing some research, and you have a long FBI file. I've read a couple different things, like 400 pages, 100 pages. Uh, how many pages is it, and was that because of your yeah. role with the Weatherman? Yeah, right. It, it is. It is 400 pages plus, although a lot of people have many longer ones than that. But, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty interesting to get it. I did get it in the late, or maybe it was the uh, late 1970s. So I start as soon as we had the Freedom of Information Act, I started the process of requesting it, um, which was very time-consuming, I have to say. Oh, I bet. But it's, the thing that's interesting about it, I mean, a lot of it is redacted. There's a lot of, you know, black markers uh, covering up, for sure, the names of all the agents, because um, they don't want us going back <laughs> and... Uh, you know, confronting the agents that were tracking us around. But the thing that's, that I found the most interesting was that there's a large, now, a lot of it's memos, it's FBI memos from agents in different cities writing to other, writing to the agent in other cities and back to the, um, the main, the, the head office in Washington, D.C., at J. Edgar Hoover's office. Uh, and there, a lot of the content of these memos is, no, we can't find her here. Is she there? I mean, you know, the people in, I was in Cleveland for a while, and uh, no, we've, we don't know where she is. She might be in Cleveland, but let's look at Baltimore, or let's look in San Francisco. No, we can't find her over here either. <laughs> I mean, it was so easy to evade the FBI in those days. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> now, has that has it, really it has it affected your life at all having an FBI file? Um, you know, it not that I know of, not in a bad way. I um, I ended up having to like earn a living, and I went to nursing school, and I had no problems getting into nursing school or getting a nursing license. Um, I had no problem with that. I had no problems well, that's with. Good. Yeah, the, and I and I think the deal is the what they really care about is is felony convictions, and I did not have a felony conviction in the end. That's good. I think being part of the weatherman probably raised a lot of red flags for you, though, didn't it? Well, you would think it would have. Yeah, yeah, you really would. It, but. Not, not so much. It's really the arrest record that they seem to care about. Uh, and so did your experiences help with the writing of your book, Protest on Trial? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, a lot. Because, first of all, I knew some of the guys because they had come through the national office 
in Chicago while I was working there. And so uh, I was slightly familiar with them and vice versa. And also because I, I know what they were living in. I mean, I could talk, they knew they weren't talking to, you know, some random person who had no clue about what it was like to be, um, you know, an anti, a full-time worker against the war. That's, it's a very different thing than just going to a demonstration from time to time. I mean, we truly, none of us thought we were going to live. I mean, we were, we never thought we were going to have a life as it were. It just, it didn't cross our minds that we would have a personal life. It, we were totally dedicated to the cause. And that changes the way you value things. It changes, yeah. changes stuff. And so, yeah, I, that was helpful because I was. We were there with the same as as the uh, as the Seattle Seven. Um, so we could use the same language, and it was easy to talk. Exactly. Yeah, it was very helpful. And now that we know a little bit about you, it seems like you were you know the the right person to write this book. But what made you want to write about the Seattle Seven? Why not? Why not Chicago? Since you were in Chicago, or women's rights, the Vietnam War, or any other events um, from that era? Yeah, well, those are huge topics, and other people have written about them. Nobody's written about the Seattle Seven. In fact, most people probably don't, they don't even know what Seattle Seven, what, maybe. I sort of remember there was a Chicago Seven, but was you know, there yeah. a Seattle Seven? That's very interesting, so, because um, I was telling a lot of people I was talking with you, and I was talking with you uh, about the Seattle 7. They're like, you mean the Chicago 10, the Chicago 8, the Chicago 7? So what makes Chicago stand out past Seattle? Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I'm a native Seattleite, so, you know, I want to put Seattle on the map. Um, So there's some of that. And also, I love the idea of writing a history from the first person words of the people who were in it you know it's like a it's like a group biography or a group oral history of a particular time so just as a writer i found it fascinating the concept Um, yeah and both trials you know turned into circuses which we'll get into a little bit later with uh with seattle but both i'm surprised that there's no movies like i know there's a chicago 10 that was kind of animated off of the uh the, the the court files, you know, but uh, other than that, there hasn't been any live action films that I know of. Has there been? No, 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 nothing about Seattle. It's, and you know, that's actually one of the questions that sort of threads through the book is why did the feds pick Seattle for these conspiracy indictments? I, I mentioned the Dr. Spock conspiracy charges. Well, those were, the exact same charges that the Chicago 7 were charged with and the exact same charges that the Seattle 7 were charged with. These are heavy-duty charges. Yeah. Um, you know, 10 years in prison and, you know, thousands of dollars in fines. It, they're big. And why, why, why Chicago? That kind of makes sense because those guys were all really national anti-war leaders. They were names that people recognized. Um, And the idea of trying to um, get them behind bars from a a 
political, from a polit, uh, you know, from a federal uh, Department of Justice standpoint, I can see why they would aim for them. But why these guys out in Seattle that nobody'd ever heard of? They were not national leaders in any way, shape, or form. And they weren't even and violent. Yet, they weren't even violent protesters, correct? Correct. Yeah. That see the the event that triggered the Seattle Seven indictments was a demonstration, as you point out, that was not particularly violent, although it ended up that way because, of course, the cops couldn't control themselves. But um, there were, the. can I describe the purpose of the demonstration? Because the whole set of indictments um, hinges on this, and here's it's another connection to Chicago, oddly enough. So everybody in early, in late 1969 and early, like early January 1970, people expect the, the, the excuse me, the Chicago 7 trial was winding down. And everybody assumed that the judge, because the, the judge had been so bizarre, that the jury would find them guilty. Okay? The jury would find them guilty. So, demon, um, Activists around the country, in every big city in the country, were planning a demonstration that they were going to call the day after, TDA, and it was going to be the day after the guilty verdict came back. Well, so there we were in um, early February, and the jury was out deliberating in Chicago, and Judge Hoffman, Julius Hoffman, could just couldn't stand it, and so he... He called, he wasn't going to wait for the jury to decide. So he called all the defendants and their attorneys into his courtroom, and he slapped them with like 159 charges wow. of, contempt, of contempt of court and sent them all to jail immediately because that's the thing about contempt of court. There's, you just go right from the courtroom into jail, and there's nothing you can do about it. So the... Everybody around the country was horrified. I mean, certainly all the activists were. And so they, the TDA demonstrations were to object to this, sending them to jail for, for contempt. And so there were many demonstrations all around the country. Boston, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, Chicago, Baltimore, everywhere. There were like 20 or so. And Seattle. So Seattle had theirs. And it was... Not the biggest by any means. There were a couple thousand people there, which was big for Seattle, but not, you know, certainly not as big as other big other cities. And it was nowhere near as violent. Had nowhere near the number of arrests that some of the other cities did. And yet, the feds focused only on the people that they thought were the leaders of the Seattle demonstration. Mm. And that's what that's what the who the Seattle Seven are. And so, one of the big questions for me in the book was what 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 were the feds thinking that they picked Seattle why did they pick Seattle it's an interesting question yeah and what else what else can you tell us um, our listeners about the Seattle 7 or who were the Seattle 7 give us some names and can you describe them a little bit oh sure I'd love to um, so I was of course fortunate enough to uh, chat with all of them with the sad, very sad exception of Susan Stern, who was the one woman. And she um, died in 
the mid-1970s, and I, I actually visited her in jail once, but um, that was in the early 1970s, but um, never got to never got to talk to her in the process of writing this book, which wow. is, it's just very sad, and because, again, as the only woman, she had, a, had her own perspective. Um, but there were, um, there were actually eight um, people who were indicted, and one of them uh, is a guy named Michael Justison, who was a, a um, freshman at the University of Washington, and he uh, uh, decided to go underground, and so he did not stand trial. Okay. And uh, yeah, and was not um, not arrested until uh, a number of years later for another crime. He actually was part of a weather underground cell in California. And uh, anyway, so he, 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 and that's how the Seattle 8 became the Seattle 7 gotcha. for the trial. Okay, so the other guys. Um, Michael Lerner is, uh, he was a University of Washington philosophy professor, assistant professor, um, who had a one-year appointment. He had just come up from Berkeley, and he had very specific, he was a Marxist, and he had very specific ideas about creating a community organization that would fight against the war and fight for, you know, rights for poor people. And um, basically, he, he had this idealistic idea of an organization he wanted to form, and he thought he could do it in Seattle because Seattle was um, uh, was known for having a very kind of radical history. We have a very left-wing radical history in Seattle, and he, he certainly knew it well. And also there were not a lot of other um, strong organizations or strong leaders at this time in Seattle. So he figured he could there was space for him, unlike in Berkeley, where he felt like there's no space for me. There's just Berkeley's infested with uh, anti-war leaders. So, so would, he would, came up. He was he was one. Would you say he would was the ringleader of the seven? Um, that's a hard question. I would say he was one of the. There were two front men. Put it that way, in terms of people who were more likely to um, be giving the speeches at the rallies, and so they were the ones who were interviewed most by the press. And yes, Michael Lerner was one of those. He was also the oldest of the group, and he was 27. There were three 19-year-olds in this crowd, and so you you have to remember back to what you were like at 19 years old oh, and yeah. how you're ability to make decisions may have been hampered by testosterone and for other sure. things. <laughs> for sure. I'm a completely different um, person, you know, than what yeah. I was at 19. That's right. I mean, I still hold some so same other, values, but I, 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 yeah, like you said, I, your thought process is different. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think it is. And it showed in the courtroom as, you know, as well as other places. Um, the other guy who would be kind of what you call the, the front man or the leader um, is Chip Marshall. And Chip was uh, um, a political science graduate of Cornell University in Ithaca, upstate New York. And he, um, he, had, he grew up in central Pennsylvania and had actually been 
to Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech in 1963 in, um, in Washington, D.C., and remembers it and was, uh, he, he worked at, with SNCC, the, um, oh dear, SNCC, S-N, Southern, uh, student, student non-violent coordinating committee was its name, but people like Stokely Carmichael came out of um, SNCC there. It was a, an early organization that initially, in the South, that initially, um, in both black and white people could be part of it, kind of like Black Lives Matter today, but then Black Power sort of came on and the Black Panthers in um, the late 1960s. And so Chip says she was probably the last white person to work at SNCC. <laughs> um, anyhow, he, he was very articulate, very charismatic. Um, and like Lerner, Lerner and Chip Marshall um, defended themselves in the trial. In other words, they were their own attorneys. Oh, wow. Uh, which was an interesting strategy. Um, that probably served them well uh, in, in a number of ways. So so there were actually four of the defendants who came out from um, Cornell and from Ithaca. And there were probably 20 or 30, maybe more, kids who came from Ithaca to Seattle to be part of this organization. Uh, it, it, it's, it was an interesting in-migration from the Seattle perspective. So Chip's best friend who came along was a guy named Joe Kelly. Um, and Joe was, a lot of people describe Joe to me as sort of being like everybody's big brother. He, he was just, he's just a really, really nice guy and um, very fair about things, but absolutely, uh, you know, has a, a steel backbone in terms of what he um, what he stands for and what he did, and he they these guys all turned in their draft cards early on, um, and so they were familiar with FBI tactics of various sorts uh, because they were already being chased around. So that was Joe. Um, then there was uh, Michael Abels, who was another one of the nineteen-year-olds um, who was uh, from Buffalo, New York, and he was a fr also a freshman at, um, at Cornell and was, um, he was kind of like the good, the good soldier. He, was, all he wanted to do was laugh and play and fight and um, he just went along with whatever anybody else wanted to do. He, he was very involved in the high school organizing that was going on in Seattle at the time. And the last of the, um, of the Cornell uh, guys who were indicted is um, Jeff Dowd, and we've talked about him a little bit before. Um, so maybe your listeners mostly know who Jeff is. Yeah, I <laughs> think I so. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, well, he was, um, he truly, I actually, I would like to read a little something about how one person described him. Can I do that? Yeah, go ahead. Um, let me find it here. And while you're looking for that, just in case we have any new listeners that aren't familiar with Big Lebowski, um, Jeff Dowd was the real-life inspiration for the dude, correct? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and and the story of how he, how the Coen brothers 
came to discover who Jeff Dowd was is also an interesting story. But let, let me um, let me read here. This is uh, how I introduce Jeff in the book. I say Jeff Dowd is big enough to be physically intimidating, as Judge Bolt was to discover during the trial, and he could shift from friendly to intimidating and back again in an adolescent minute. He was another 19-year-old, I have to say. He had, and still has, a creative, theatrical, goofy bent that allows and even encourages him to say and do things in public that most people wouldn't consider, let alone actually do. <laughs> one, friend, one friend described Dowd as, quote, brilliant in flashes, other times idiotic, he was the wild idea guy. One of his girlfriends told me, Jeff never envisioned himself having an ordinary life. He had two speeds, full speed ahead or comatose. <laughs> um, and uh, that's, that, that's kind of how he gets started off. Uh, he was, yeah, he, he had a lot of interesting ideas and was just the spark, you know, that made a lot of things happen. Um, and and he had a number of uh, pretty good pretty good things uh, to say about uh, the the trial in the trial itself. Well, and none of them um, and none of them were were from Seattle at all. Um, no, that's not quite true. Okay, uh, Michael Justison, the guy who didn't stand trial, was from Seattle. The other guy who was from Seattle, because we're still going down the list here. Oh, I'm we sorry. got uh, yeah, we got um, one more, I think. Um, Roger Lipman was a Seattleite, and gotcha. Ro- so Roger was in Seattle at the time, in other words, before the Ithaca guys showed up, um, and before Michael Lerner came, um, and before Susie was there. Su- Susie Stern, she actually was the first uh, outsider to arrive. She came to um, Seattle with her then husband at the time uh, from Syracuse, interestingly, also from upstate New York, but um, she was, uh, they had both graduated and he was coming to the University of Washington to go to law school and she was coming to um, get a master's degree in social work, which they both ended up doing. Um, But, so Roger was the native and his he, he was a Reed College dropout. Reed College is a very liberal, small school um, in uh, near Portland, Oregon. And he, he started out as a chemistry major and then found he was spending all his time doing um, draft, organ, draft resistance organizing and SDS work uh, and ended up dropping out and coming to Seattle, um, back home to Seattle where he was very involved in the local SDS chapter on campus. As a, he wasn't a student, but um, that didn't make any difference in those days. Uh, and, and he was also very active in the um, draft resistance movement, which was uh, actually very active in Seattle. Now, didn't I read somewhere that uh, before they went to, to uh, Seattle, the plan was to protest in Hawaii? Oh, <laughs> yeah, there's a really... <laughs> There's a very funny bit about that um, from Dowd, of course. Uh, he Can I read this? Yeah, this go is, ahead. This is, this is his description. This is how what Dowd told me about why they decided to come to Seattle from Ithaca. 
He said, we wanted to go to the West Coast for the reasons many of us are on the West Coast from decades of people going to the West Coast, right? <laughs> so we went to this rundown farmhouse in upstate New York for a weekend, trying to figure out where we'd go. We wanted to go someplace we could organize and also live. So we went through a bunch of cities. We didn't consider San Diego very much. On paper, San Jose was very good. Working class, this, that, and the other thing. But we'd heard that Dionne Warwick back rack song, and we just didn't want to go to San Jose. <laughs> Portland, we somehow didn't consider. The great place on paper was Honolulu. Working class, military bases, partially third world, etc. But we couldn't picture it. Going to Hawaii to organize and sending postcards back saying, okay, we're ready to go. Let us know when the revolution is ready and we'll kick in our shit. You know, you know, we just couldn't justify saying we were organizing in Honolulu. Yeah, people just so aren't going to take yeah. you serious if you're protesting in Hawaii, are they? That's right, that's right. So Seattle on paper looked really, really good. Oh, yeah, for sure. We knew, we, yeah, he says we didn't know anybody there. Zero personal connection. But, of course, you had the whole working class Wobblies background and the Seattle strike. Those were the some of the liberal radical things I mentioned earlier. And it was a small enough town but big enough. Um, so, he said, so we decided to go to Seattle. We knew nobody. We arrived on December 30th, 1969 with 10 cents, which we blew on a wrong number. So... <laughs> And they got yeah. everybody, and then they they got the world's attention, didn't they? They they well yeah briefly. <laughs> <laughs> so so tell yeah. us about the trial, the conspiracy, and then just the grand jury process. Oh God, yes. Um, it's too complicated to try to really describe the grand jury process, other than the fact that it is very sneaky, evil, and terrifying. And it continues today. It just, it's a, it's a way for a prosecutor to get an indictment. To get a, a felony indictment, you need a grand jury to rubber stamp it, basically. And this is not what grand juries were initially designed to do, et cetera, but that is what they have become. And in the, seven, in the 1970s, late 1960s, the um, Department of Justice uh, had a whole team of aggressive attorneys, prosecuting attorneys, who went around the country convening grand juries to catch weathermen, primarily, and Black Panthers. That was their goal. Um, president Nixon, he was the president at this time, was really out to get the Panthers. He thought they were the worst the worst thing possible, and the weathermen were just right behind them. Um, and anybody who supported the Panthers, which, of course, the weathermen did. So um, so in the grand jury process, you get called, you can get subpoenaed, and you don't know. First of all, you, have, you cannot have an attorney in the room with you. There's no judge. You have no attorney. There's no spectators. There's no journalists. Um, you're in there by yourself with the prosecuting attorney who asks you a whole bunch of really broad questions that you don't know if they're if you're the target or if it's somebody else your friends 
So you don't you don't know what how to answer. And if you say I take the Fifth Amendment, um, they can throw you in jail because wow. they waive they waive your Fifth Amendment um, uh, rights, if you will, uh, for a grand jury. And so you don't talk, you go to jail. And it's still happening today. One of the I, I talked to a guy um, who was involved in in an anarchist demonstration here in Seattle a couple, just a couple of years ago, and this, it, it's still happening. Um, there are, in fact, there are people from, you know, who were arrested during the Trump inauguration um, for, for, for objecting to the Trump inauguration, and, uh, and they, they, they have been charged with conspiracy and have gone through this grand jury process. So it's, it's alive and well. It's a very scary weapon that the um, federal government has. Well, so was the Seattle 7 judge, was he better than the Chicago judge? <laughs> Good question. Um, he, uh, he tried. He actually tried. The, the judge was named George Bolt, B-O-L-D-T, and he was a federal judge in the District of Western Washington. And he was used to um, racketeering and labor corruption charges. He was used to dealing with defendants who knew the ropes, you know, who, and, and attorneys who could control their defendants. Um, and he, he, because the trial came after the Chicago 7 trial by several months, he was well aware that that Judge Hoffman in Chicago had kind of lost it. And so he, he tried in the beginning to be um, uh, sort of more judicial, if you will, but it deteriorated relatively quickly. <laughs> wow. He was actually accused of being a good German. Can you explain what that means? Oh, yeah. That's, um, that's a really good part of the story, actually. Um, so for... For us, uh, people of my age, okay, we are—we were born. Our parents fought in World War II, okay, and or knew people who did. Uh, so we were brought up thinking that Nazism and Hitler and Germany was like the worst possible thing you could be, and the idea of a good German is a German who let it happen who let Hitler come to power, who let their country do the terrible things that it did in World War II. Wow. So to be, acute, to be accused of being a good German is to be accused of um, just allowing fascism to appear in your country. Wow, and it even gets better. Tell us about the Nazi flag and just the Seattle 7's behavior in the courtroom. Yeah, well, they, again... They, too, uh, briefly tried um, to be sensible because they, they thought the charges were ridiculous uh, and that there was no way they, were, they would lose. Uh, they were innocent and it would be clear. And remember, these people are, you know, they, they'd had high school civics classes and American government classes, and they believed that. Um, you know, a, you get a jury of your peers and you're innocent until proven guilty. I mean, even though they've been through many, many other 
situations where that was obviously not the case, none of them had ever been in a federal courtroom before or had a jury trial like this. So they believed they could get a fair, if they could get a fair jury, they thought they could get off. And it took three days to pick the jury. And in that process, it was very clear that they were not going to get a fair jury. The prosecution just basically kicked everybody out of the jury pool who was, um, you know, under 30 years old. There, there were a couple, but not very many. I mean, everybody was older, and they, every single person on the jury, this was, this is now, we're talking like the end of November 1970. Everybody on that jury said they had no opinion about the war in Vietnam. None. I mean, these people could, these defendants could not believe that there would be a human being in the country who had no opinion about a war that had killed 58,000 of their of their own citizens at this point. I mean, they dedicated their whole lives to ending this war. And, and what? There's people who have no opinion. So they realized they didn't have a fair jury. Uh, and so then things went downhill from, from there. And at one point, and I will get you our Nazi flag thing here. Uh, let's see. It's pretty cool. So what happened was, um, yeah, death down toward the end of the trial when, when it was clear that this was going off the rails, um, Jeff, <laughs> Jeff Dowd got somebody to um, sew him up a Nazi flag, a huge Nazi <laughs> flag, which he um, concealed under his shirt as he went into the courtroom that morning wow. and then pulled it out in this obviously a hugely dramatic way. And they all of the, the defendants all grabbed parts of this flag and they threw it up onto the judge's, you know, his desk, his raised desk, and said, this is the flag that ought to be up there behind you, not the American flag. And he says, you know, Dowd, Dowd said, and this is from the transcript of the trial, the thing that dis disappointed me most every day coming to this courtroom, and you stand up there and you salute that flag. That flag was born in revolution, and your honor, I don't honestly think that flag deserves to be up there. The flag that deserves to be up there is this one, the Nazi flag. And then, then he threw it out there. Wow. How, so did that, he, how did he sneak that in the courtroom? I mean, did he just he just put it underneath his shirt, and that was it then, huh? Yeah, it was probably made out of silk or something, so it was not... It yeah. was, uh, you know, not very bulky, but it was very big. The the picture of him, the the newspapers actually covered the trial. Local newspapers covered the trial pretty well, and there's a pretty nice picture of uh, of him doing that. So the so the good German thing um, uh, that came up several times in the trial, and I'll just read you again from the trial transcript. Um, Chip Marshall, who, as I said, was defending himself, and he's sort of concluding this little speech he's giving. Um, so he, he concluded by accusing the judge of acting like a good German, and I've explained what that means. Well, Judge Bolt interrupted and said, I'm not a German, 
you understand that. My ancestors are Danes. <laughs> like, he didn't even get it. He didn't even get the and, joke. <laughs> and, uh, no. And, and so Chip says, pardon? And Bolt says, my ancestors are Danes and Swedes. I have no German blood whatsoever. <laughs> and Joe Kelly chimes in then, you don't even understand what he's talking about. And Susan Stern then jumps <laughs> up and says, there's something rotten in Denmark, which I hopefully some of your audience understands that as a Shakespearean reference to uh, Hamlet, because um, that's, you know, there's something rotten in Denmark. Um, and so the spectators, the, the, the um, uh, courtroom was filled every day with um, the spectators who were the supporters of the, of the Seattle Seven, and they would uh, trek down to court in the pouring rain and freezing cold every day um, to, be in the, to be in the courtroom, and they were active. They would cheer and clap and yell and give fist pumps. Um, there were many spectators were thrown out for for acting, and in the end, there was this huge riot in the in the courtroom. But uh, wow, yeah, you can't you yeah. can't make that kind of a story up, can you? Um, <laughs> well, I don't know. There's a lot of. I mean, this was real. I guess you could make it up, but it's not as it's not as good because it's not real. Exactly, it's, and so it was definitely downhill after that. So. They were convicted and they were sent to prison. Is that correct? Um, actually, no. What happened was they um, the judge declared a mistrial. Is what happened, and he declared a mistrial, which means it's over. The jury goes home, and we'll try we'll try the case again. That's what it means. So. The, the defendants <laughs> were pretty appalled. It was very sudden. Uh, and it came about because uh, um, the, the defendants were very um, upset that the spectators, there were always more spectators who were Seattle Liberation Front. They were supporters of the defendants. Um, there were always more of them than could fit in the in the courtroom, and so they had to stay outside on the sidewalk. Where, as I said, it was raining always. With I mean, this is Seattle we're talking about, and it was December, uh, so it was very uncomfortable. And people were getting sick, and um, the defendants wanted them to be able to come into the building at least, even if they couldn't. You know, while they waited to maybe try to have a seat in the courtroom, and the and the judge and the prosecution kept saying, "No, no, no, don't do this." Well, the defendants finally got so upset over this that they were they went into their conference room, the defense conference room, and refused to come into the courtroom for the beginning of their trial. Uh, and Judge Bolt got very upset and went charging down the hall, and the defendants at that same moment rushed out of their conference room and that mar- there were marshals there and people were getting hit and Judge Bolt disappeared into his office and the defendants just kept on rushing down to the courtroom and the jury was seated, was there in the courtroom, which is very unusual for a jury to be sitting there without all of the defendants and the attorneys and stuff being there. So Chip Marshall just walked over to the jury, the jury box, and sort of leaned on it and sort of said, 
I bet you guys were wondering what was going on in the hall out there. You know, well, we were, we're just upset because our guys, our supporters are out in the cold and the rain and they're getting sick and we really think they should be able to come in and wait in the lobby or something and get out of the rain. Well, Judge Bolt at that point walks into the courtroom and is horrified that a defendant is talking directly to the jury, which is entirely yeah. not okay. Wow. And so that's when Judge Bolt said, okay, it's over. You know, mistrial. And then he did the same thing that Hoffman did in the sense of he declared a mistrial and then he threw the book at everybody uh, wow. with a whole series of contempt charges and that's when they went to jail. Wow. So, or prison. They went to federal prison. Yeah, federal prison, yeah, which is a big difference. So how were the Seattle Seven received by the inmates? I mean, were they seen as heroes after all of this? Um, that's, yeah, they were, yeah, they, they, were, they were separated, and they went to several different prisons. Um, but, uh, yes, in some cases they, they were, well, it depended. Let me, let me get you back to Mr. Dowd here. Dowd and Roger Lippman. Um, were sent to a prison together, uh, and they, they, yes, they, they organized a demonstration immediately, um, and, or (laughs) actually that, that demonstration happened when they were still in the Tacoma City Jail, when they were trying to figure out what prisons to get them. So they, yes, they, they organized a demonstration in, in the, um, in the, in the city jail. And then they were shipped off to, uh, as I say, up and down the West Coast, a variety of um, federal prisons. But um, I bet you want to hear about Dowd and uh, LSD. In oh, the- yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a great story. <laughs> yeah. Now, and this is, um, Roger Lippman is the one who gave me the, told me this story, but it was he and Dowd. He says, um, we get there uh, and they were at McNeil Island Federal Penitentiary is where they went, which actually has been closed in the in the interim, but it was alive and well at that point. We get there, and the first thing they do is throw us in the hole, a disgusting tower of small floors, several floors high. They left us there all weekend. Guards would come up the stairs to bring food, and prisoners would throw things at them down the stairs. Monday morning, we're taken into the warden's office. Basically, he said, you can get along or not. The message was clear. Then they put us into the regular prison part. So when you enter McNeil Island as a prisoner, you go into the admission and orientation room with cots where you sleep before you go into the cell blocks. You're there for 30 days, partly to check on if you are marked as a target by gangs or whatever. They don't want you to get stabbed on your first day. But during the first month, you could eat with the general population, go to the library, etc. Our uniforms were khaki pants with a belt with a clasp, not a buckle. And there was a tiny space there that was never searched. Just enough room for a hit or two of LSD. That would come in handy later. We made friends instantly. A lot of people there had been sentenced by Judge Bolt, their same judge. He was a tough sentencer. Armed robbery got 25 years. Wow. The fact that the fact that we had stood up to him was heroic to them. They all knew about the case because of TV and radio. One guy said, you're never going to get out of here. There were a lot of cynics. We knew, though, that we had good lawyers and a whole movement behind us, so we didn't feel so isolated. 
And then, uh, let's see, get back to the, okay. After we'd gotten comfortable and knew how to behave, Dowd and I had some fun. A visitor brought me two tabs of windowpane acid, which I concealed in my belt clasp. <laughs> Jeff and I talked a lot about how we were going to, well, we were, how we were going to act on the day we tripped. We took breakfast, we had breakfast, took the acid, and weren't sure how we'd handle lunch. We got a table with two doper friends who were cool. Then we went and watched TV, Lost in Space or something like that. <laughs> boy, boy, we were lost in space. <laughs> oh, wow. That is crazy. I'll tell you what, this would make a fantastic movie if they were just to... Uh... Uh, to take your book and turn it into a movie. That'd be so awesome. <laughs> so, <but> then, <laughs> well, <laughs> that sounds good to me. Music to my ears. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I interviewed Jeff Dow just a few weeks ago. Uh, we have a lot of big Lebowski fans, you know, uh, including myself. Do you have any other uh, surprising or interesting stories that you learned about the dude or some things that uh, didn't make the book? He, he was very clear about how much he did not like the weatherman strategy. And he, he talked about that. He said, you know, unlike weathermen, we were, we, we, and by that he means the, um, really the Cornell, Ithaca crowd that came to Seattle to form this, this organization, which ended up being called the Seattle Liberation Front. He said, we were really, really, really good organizers. Chip and I, and he meant everybody at that point, were emphatically not weathermen. We defined ourselves as not weathermen. And that is, that's completely true. Um, the, he, he said a number of times, you know, we didn't, we did not want to be the vanguard. We wanted to be the majority. I mean, it, he had a real, and I think he still has this. He has a very ecumenical sense of you know making things better for everybody and not wanting to be you know a vanguard not wanting to be Che Guevara you know but rather wanting to be a leader who brings everybody along with them um, and I, yeah I really I really did get that that sense from um, from him how long did you interview and, Jeff Dowd Oh, well, you've interviewed him, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, what do you think? How many hours? <laughs> oh, man, he, he's a talker, and he's, he's, a, he's pedal to the metal, you know? <laughs> yeah, he is. He is. He, he definitely is, yeah. Yeah, it was definitely hours. It was pretty funny. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, he's just, he's running on so many different threads, uh, and... Yeah, I mean, he gets tangled up sometimes, but that you know, that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. So, how many people did you interview for protest on trial? Uh, probably, actually, you asking me that question earlier made me uh, actually go back and count. I uh, probably about sixty. Wow. And and it wasn't just the defense and their supporters. I mean, I also interviewed attorneys and. Um, U.S. Marshals and FBI agents and, you know, Man. anybody on any side of the barricade that was willing to talk to me because uh, I wanted to get a picture of these people and this, this, these circumstances from, from a lot of different perspectives. Man, it seems very time-consuming. How long did it take you to complete the book? Uh, <laughs> that was sort of a shock to me, too, when I figured that out. It was six years since oh, I started. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah, 
and and the way it got started was um, I ran into Roger Lippman, who was one of the defendants, and uh, six years ago, and uh, he he was saying, you know, nobody's ever really written our story, you know, in in full length form, and I I had already written a couple of books, and so I thought hmm, I could probably do this. <laughs> and so that's how it got started. How long were you expecting? Um, how long do you think it was going to take you? Oh, oh, a couple years, maybe maybe two at the most. <laughs> <laughs> wow! So uh, it, it's it. it's fascinating, but you know, history can change depending on who is telling the story. You know, different interpretations. Yep. Did you get a lot of different stories from people uh, when you were interviewing them? I yeah, I did, especially around. I would ask people to tell me, you know, I'd ask person A to tell me about person B. And then I'd ask person C to tell me about person B. And so I had multiple takes on what what a, what a person was, was like and how they acted. And there were some things that I had to make a judgment. Some, you know, some obviously totally didn't agree with each other. Uh, and so I had to try to just like any good journalist, you know, you try to get cooperating stories, make see if it's happening, you know. I mean, you, you can't just print it because one person says so. Um, so, yeah, I tried, to, I tried to use my own judgment as well as sort of put together what I heard from multiple people and see if I could make it, you know, fit, kind of. What was your favorite part of collecting all these interviews? Was there something that surprised you or interested you that you didn't know about and uh, that you enjoyed writing about? Well, I, I really, they, as I said, they made me think, you know, about how individual people make decisions about how they're going to respond to the... Um, politics of the day or you know how are you going to respond to terrible things that you see happening that are being done in your country by you know in your name um where you're you know i'm an american and so in some ways i'm responsible for everything that happens in america and everything that america does around the world so to think about how do you decide what you're going to do in response to that sense that was it was just it was thoughtful it was very thoughtful and all the all these guys were very thoughtful when i asked them you know looking back on your 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 younger self um kind of why did you do what you did and how has that changed now how has that affected you know colored your life going forward uh, in, in terms of your principles and your your decisions, um, and I think I think when I give talks about this, I find audiences themselves then start if they're if they're of that age group will start thinking back about how did I make the decisions that I made, you know. Um, it, so that was really um, that that was really helpful and. And interesting. I, I enjoyed that part a lot. You know, and as we draw to a close here, there's been a lot of gun violence protests, police brutality protests. Is there anything we can learn from the Seattle Seven? 
that it's not it's nothing new that's for sure <laughs> uh, yeah I think I think understanding about history that this isn't the worst of times there have been terrible times before uh, I think that's important um, and the power of the government in so many ways certainly we on the weatherman side completely underestimated the power of the government uh, we would make fun of the fact that they couldn't catch any of us but on the other hand they we didn't we didn't have a clue as to how we could change their minds um, or change anything and if we you know so knowing I think understanding something about history and and studying, learning more. We didn't know enough to make the right, a lot of the right decisions. I think we made the right decision in standing up. I mean, as one of the defendants told me, we, more than one, we were on the right side of history. You know, maybe we, maybe we made some mistakes. Maybe we should have played the trial straighter, you know, um, should have had our strategies clearer. Uh, Etc. But we were on the right side of history, and that means a lot. Let's end with a quote: uh, "Dissent okay. is as American as apple pie." Could you explain that quote to our listeners? Yeah, that's kind of my conclusion. I, I think that to dissent, when when you see something wrong, when you see something, say something. You know, that's what that's what people say nowadays. It's Dissent, all of the good things that have happened in America have come from dissenters, from activists and dissenters who didn't like what was going on and decided to do something about it. I mean, the, uh, women's suffrage, get, women being able to vote it is like, it took 72 years. Wow. The idea, the idea probably started in the minds of you know, maybe five or six women sitting around at lunch one day in the middle 1800s. And they said, you know, I think women ought to be able to vote. You know, and everybody said, you're crazy. Of course you can't vote. You're a woman. Well, it literally, it took 72 years of constant active um, dissent to allow women to vote. And that just seems so ridiculous today, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. But... Things start dissent. Uh, dissent always looks silly in the beginning because you're such a tiny minority. But things that are just a little tiny minority on day one, maybe on year seventy-two, they end up being well. Of course, you know. And so, women's suffrage is just one thing, but almost everything else—child labor laws, um, you know, clean air standards. Um, traffic lights. I mean, almost everything has come that's good has come from dissent of some kind where some American stood up and said, I think it could be better. And this is what I think we should do. So, so stand up for what you believe in and make a difference. I think that's a great place to end. Don't you? (laughs) I'm happy to do that as long as everybody goes out and does it (laughs) (laughs) for sure so kit what is next for you um well i'm still processing some of this stuff and 
you know, writing a couple little articles and giving a few more talks um, on this subject. Um, writing a book is really hard. I don't actually have a plan for another book um, at this point. It's it really is hard. And this this <laughs> yeah, just released in March, right? Yeah, yeah. Is there anything that I haven't brought up that you want our listeners to know about other your other books, uh, nonprofits you support, anything? Um, I would like to end with um, I do support a number of nonprofits, and I think they're listed on my website at one point. But I would like to talk about two really wonderful things that came out of the um, Seattle Seven, the organization that they ended up forming, which we didn't talk about specifically, but it was called the Seattle Liberation Front, and this was um, sort of the brainchild of the Ithaca people and Michael Lerner together. And they they did a number of, of independent collectives that went out and did things, like go out and organize against the war at a certain high school, or go to the unemployment office and feed people coffee and donuts and talk to them about the war, a number of things. But two of the things that were done by these supporters of the Seattle Seven are social service agencies that still exist today in Seattle and serve tens of thousands of, of Seattleites. One of them is a, um, a medical clinic that's called Country Doctor Community Health Clinic, a very successful, really probably close to 100,000 patient visits a year, very successful, very wonderful, started by these people. And the other one is an organization called the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project. And it was started by a guy who was arrested at the TDA demonstration in Seattle, um, who was part of part of the uh, Seattle Liberation Front organization. And it is a group of attorneys and um, social workers and stuff who are trying to help um, immigrants who are being deported and detained. And of course, right now, everybody's working double time with all these children and parent separations. In fact, I'm going to a demonstration on Saturday um, that's uh, in, down at one of the detention centers here in town. So those two organizations are just doing nothing but good work, and they are a fabric of the city of Seattle, and they're a legacy of the Seattle Seven. Excellent. And I want to suggest to everybody to pick up your book. Um, the highest praise I can give it is, um, you know, a lot of these books can come off like a Wikipedia page, you know? And I think your book comes off, it has a good flow to it. Like, I, it was a page turner for me. Um, so I really oh. enjoyed it. So I, I just want to tell everybody, you know, pick up Protest on Trial, the Seattle 7 Conspiracy. I think you'll like it. Ah, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank um, you, thank you. Thanks for your time, Kit. Where can Videoland find you? Um, you can find me at uh, kitbaki.com um, or kit at kit, let's see. Kit at kitbaki.com is an email, and kitbaki.com is the website. Excellent. And to all our listeners, you can find us on adventuresinvideoland.com. Uh, we are on Facebook. That's where the conversation begins and ends. Uh, we are on Tumblr. We're all over the place. So until next time, my good people, peace out. Yeah.